else do that, but approach sometimes in preaching is slightly different than many pastors or ministers. Um, Josh and I have the same pattern of writing out a text and handing it out for you. My sermon are actually not my preaching text. Um, preaching text is the margin of my sermon notes. And my sermon notes are available to you. Allison said she has some of those, so if you want them, you can pick them up, and if they run out, you, they'll email them to you, or you can get a copy of them. So what you're hearing from me this morning is really how I flesh all of that out. I'll give you a background. It's somewhat like approaching any text of Scripture when you look at it, you may have some key idea or some key point. That's the focal point. This is, this is the, the text. And our text today is in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And essentially our text is 23. I don't know where that is in your pew Bible. I'm sorry. I, I didn't look that up. I haven't had a paper Bible in a while. I just... But the text reads, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. The context of this is the whole chapter. But then there is a greater context to the text. The text that we see here in its immediate context is Samuel's farewell address. He has been, after a life of being absolutely faithful to the Lord, from a child who was dedicated by his mother to be a Nazarite from birth. There's only one other recorded instance of that in Scripture, and that's of Samson. And the contrast between Samuel's life and Samson is dramatic. Samson, who lived somewhat in the moment, in the flesh, and whatever his eye saw, he kind of inclined toward it, but yet at the same time had a heart for God, appealed to the Lord, and the Lord used him, and he's listed among those great saints of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And Samuel, the opposite. His mother made the prayer. He She's the one that said, you'll be a Nazarite from birth. And he took it on himself and did it. From beginning to end, he was faithful to that. And so in some ways, to understand the text and its immediate context, you need to have a snapshot, I think, as it were, of Samuel himself, his whole life. What is it that he is about? What makes him tick? What are the exigencies of life? What are the, the crises that he faces, the conflict that's his? And indeed, that conflict begins at the very onset of his life. His mother has made a vow and dedicated him to the Lord. She's faithful in that. She was barren. The Lord answered her prayer. And the son was born to her. She said, if you give him to me, I will not redeem him according to the law. I will not buy him back by offering another sacrifice. He's yours. So as soon as he's weaned, I will take him to Eli, the priest, and I'll leave him there. Mothers, fathers, 
Imagine making this vow to the Lord. And the father, Elkanah, he had the opportunity to say, this is a rash vow. I'm not going to let you adhere to it. I'm going to disavow your vow. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, this is it. So he endorses what his wife has said. And so now when he's weaned, probably in those days, maybe even three or four years of age, this young child is taken to Eli and left there. He will serve and minister to you, to the Lord, under your jurisdiction. And I will come and see him once a year. Tremendous sacrifice. And here's this child now serving under Eli, who is a priest who, frankly, was not faithful. Uh, He was in some ways, but his sons were dissolute, disobedient, did things that we don't really want to talk about in mixed company. And Eli didn't confront them. The Lord says about Eli... I'm going to reject you and your whole house. I'm going to hold you in judgment for what you've failed to do. And he says in Scripture, chapter 2 of Samuel, And the Lord rejected Eli in all the words, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I'm looking for a man among you who has a heart that is fully and totally committed to me. One who will not turn aside to the right or to the left, but will look to me and me and only. He'll understand my mind. He'll understand my heart. Much like what Paul says when he's writing to the church at Philippi, you have the mind of Christ. So it was, he was, God appoints for himself those that he calls out to himself. Now, imagine this young child. How old is he now? We don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. He's still young. He's still under the tutelage, as it were, of Eli. And he hears in the night, Samuel thinks it's Eli. Jumps out of bed, runs over to Eli and says, well, what is it that you want? I didn't call you. Go to bed. A little while later, again, Samuel. Samuel rises up and goes back to Eli, and Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back. The third time, he says, now Eli recognizes what he perhaps himself experienced when he was a young man that the Lord is speaking to Samuel. And he tells him, when you're called again, say, Lord, here I am I. Speak to me. And the first message that he gets as his call to be a judge and a priest in Israel is what? I want you as a young teenage boy, let's say, go confront your mentor who is old in his years and has respect in the community, and I want you to confront him and tell him 
that I have forsaken him. I'm turning away from him. I will not honor his house, and I will cause disaster to fall upon him. First assignment, major conflict. And what does it do? It prepares Samuel for really a lifelong ministry of intercession and, as it were, really conflict management with those who oppose God in terms of the Philistines, primarily in the narrative of Samuel, and those within, supposedly, the covenant relationship with God. And he, he does it. He's timid about it. Let's be truthful here. As he comes to him, he says, All right, God spoke to me, and Eli sees the hesitation and says, Well, tell me, what did he say? And that's Eli's credit, at least. He says he knows that something bad is coming to him because it's already been revealed to him that would happen. And now he, Samuel tells him. And this really sets the stage for a life of obedience to God. And it's reinforced in Samuel chapter 3 and verse 21 where he says, And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Here's one who listens to God, who has this communication, this dialogue. And this is, frankly, the nature of prayer. There are over 600 prayers listed in Scripture and many more implied beyond that. And in all of these, we see not some formulaic pattern of prayer, we see that in somewhat, I suppose, in the disciples' prayer, or what we think of as the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. But here we see, no, this is a dialogue that God is having with his people. How is it that he speaks to them? In some sense, we know already that he has the Mosaic law, he has the Torah, and God has spoken in his word. But God also meets him existentially in the circumstances of his life, and he speaks to him and he works in his life, and he orders and structures the things in his life. And Samuel has the ear and the heart to perceive it and listen to it and respond to it. You see this pattern exemplified in scriptures in numerous places in Second Chronicles chapter 16. Um, Asa who started out well in his ministry as king, ends up poorly. And Hanani comes to him, and he says, For the eyes of the Lord go to and forth, to and fro throughout the whole earth, giving strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. This is what we find in the character of Samuel. And frankly, it's the thing that we need to examine in our own lives. If we seek to have a communication with God, we seek to seek him out in prayer, the first thing we do is we come and we say, Lord, look at my heart. Like David says at the end of Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or like John when he's writing in his first epistle, he says, if we confess our sins, that is, if we agree with God regarding our sins, he is faithful and just and to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come to this place where we agree with God, Lord, I have sinned, and I can't go 
throughout the day without some major faux pas, which is, of course, a euphemism for sin, missing the mark, selfish intentions, misspeaking. We err at so many levels. But to come to God, we know, just like we've celebrated at the table, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be what? A liar, and his word is not in us. My children, I have written these things to you so that you do not sin, but when you sin, but when you sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a satisfaction not for your sins only, but for the sins of the world. Here's a redemption that has come to us in Christ. That's extraordinary. And that comes from the heart, like Samuel had, that seeks after God and goes after him. It's what Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel. I'm looking for somebody who will stand in the gap, in the breach, to intercede between the people who are rebellious and me. And this is the role of Samuel. This is the role of prayer. This is what Donald Blesch writes about in The Struggle of Prayer. He says that you are essentially a prophet. You are an intercessor. You are one who what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 16, I think in verse 26, where he says, join with, he invites, join with me in the struggle of prayer. We have in the ESV the strive, but it's really wrestling this kind of encounter like Jacob has when he prevails through the night. When we come to prayer, do we come casually to prayer? Or do we come broken with sin, but no rejoicing in redemption and saying, I'm free from the penalty of sin. I know that your love is pervasive and it has transformed me and it has changed me and has molded me and it has shaped me and it is taking me to this very throne of grace. So now here, I have the opportunity to intercede for those who have neglected you. There's this heart, this passion for God's covenant promises to be fulfilled. One of the most heartfelt, striking prayers that I find in Scripture found in... uh, Sorry about this, but I have tremors. It's not Parkinson's disease, but it's an affliction nonetheless. And... When you look at Moses, who's leading the people out of Egypt, and he's interceding for them, he's pleading on their behalf. It's really what Samuel himself is echoing in this prayer. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, because I've been called as your intercessor, as your judge, as your priest. And this is what I'll do. And this is what Moses did. Remember when the people are rebelling, and he says, so... He says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 25, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, Oh God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, because he hated them, because he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power, by your outstretched hand. It is God-centered. For my sake, I do these things, is what God declares. And Samuel understood that. He had this, some of his own fodder in prayer. Because these are your people. Compare this, and we'll do this on Sunday nights. And one of the sessions that we have together, the prayer of Daniel. And how often he says, it's your people, your name, for your sake. And that's what we do when we enter into prayer. Like Samuel, we say, oh, far be it, oh Lord, that I should not love those who are lost. For there I once was. Far be it, oh Lord, that I should fail to provide intercession for them. Because these are people whom you love. And these are people whom you've brought into my life. And these are people that you give me the privilege of being an ambassador for Christ to declare your love. So Lord, open the door. Lord, provide for their salvation. And if it suits you, use me for your namesake. This is the heart of the intercessor. It's the one, what, exactly what we just read about God saying to Eli, I will raise up for myself someone who knows my heart and knows my mind. And if you want to know the heart and the mind of God, read carefully John 17. This is the priestly prayer of Jesus, that his glory might be made known to his own and that his own might get made known to others, that they might join in this perichoresis, this three-level relationship or three-person relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the joy that the Trinity delights in. What Jesus is talking about going back to the Father. And now he's saying, I want all that know me to come into the same joy and the same dynamic the same power of this relationship. This is the heart of God. This is the mind of God. And this is the focus of Samuel's life. This is what drives that dramatic statement at the end of chapter 12 when he says, I'll continue on. And even though at this point he has been deposed or as judge, as priest. Because the people looked around, and when they were invaded, and you see this, if you look in the notes that you can pick up later in chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, where they're fighting against the Philistines. And Samuel intervenes here in chapter 7 and dramatically saves him. And the people know that he is a man of prayer, a man of power, much like what James says in James chapter 5 when he's referring to the believers and asking them <clears throat> to ask of God. You're like Elijah. You have that same access to God that Elijah had. 
Same access to God that Samuel had. So stand in the gap. Rise up. Or get down on your knees. Whatever it is that motivates you that you might know and experience God at work in and through you for his glory. Because your concern isn't you. Your concern is him. So often, I find that sometimes Christians are looking for some kind of talisman, some kind of formulaic pattern for reaching God. And it doesn't exist. During Desert Storm, I was was a chaplain for the 25th Marines, the regiment. And we were in Norway doing a NATO war exercise uh, while Desert Storm was just starting off. And our assignment was to go, and we were doing an assignment imagining that Russia might come in over the top and invade Sweden and Finland and Norway. And so we were doing a war exercise in the wintertime. But these Marines that were in my unit, they knew that from here we're going to the sand of Saudi Arabia. We're going to the desert. And some of these Marines are thinking, Some of my friends here, like some of my friends when I was younger, are not coming back. I tell you that when I had worship services out in the snow, it was well attended. And the question that came up, two questions. Chaplain, do you have a a scapula for me, some kind of cloth that kind of like a magic wand or something that's going to protect me? Or do you have a Bible for me? Do you have a rosary for me? Do you have a cross for me? And more important, chaplain, will you be there? When we go into battle, will you be there, chaplain? When I applied for the job, the colonel who hired me, I was a, only a lieutenant commander, and it was a commander's billet, but he said, Gary, you're not what I, what I want. I want somebody that can be here on Sunday. And you can only be here on Fridays and Saturdays because you have a church on Sunday. And I said, sir, if you have somebody as your chaplain on Sunday, that means he can't do his job. And he said, well, can you be with my troops no matter what? I said, if you're going on a 25-mile hump, I will run up and down the line all the way through. If you're jumping out of helicopters, I'll be there. If you're rappelling down cliffs, I will be there. No matter where it is, I will be with the troops. And he said, you're hired. Because he understood that a ministry of presence is what they needed. What he didn't understand was that it's a ministry of intercession that is vital. But a ministry of presence precedes a ministry of intercession. And that's what you have. Both the the presence and the intercession. You have been given access to the living God. The door is open. Enter into it. There's a, uh, a text in Isaiah 59. He says, your sins have separated you from God that he will not hear you. But there's a text that we've already referred to that says, that God has made provision for that sin. And you take advantage of that provision for sin, then you have access to God. And Jesus says 
in the farewell discourse. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And so what is your joy? Is your joy the same joy that Christ has? If you have the mind of God and the heart of God, it most certainly is. You are an ambassador for Christ. Well, let me read the text to close out the message and suggest to you that as you go back through this text, there are many things that Samuel says here that refer to the whole book of Judges because remember, after 450 years, he's the last judge and a righteous one. There are all the things here that refer back to his earlier life of which we've touched on just a few things. So read it carefully. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me. And I have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord, before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or who, from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you or reason with you or present to you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the land of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the land of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. And on every side you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God is your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, the Lord has sent a king over you. But if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of God will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord and he will send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel called on the name of the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people said to Samuel, pray, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins, this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit, deliver. They are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, you and your king. What did Samuel do after this? He was marginalized, he was put on a shelf, but he continued to do his entire life. I continue to pray for you, I continue to intercede for you, and they continued to come to you, and God continued to speak through him, and God anointed David through him. And even after his death, when Saul sinned wickedly at the witch at Endor, it was Samuel who came and pronounced judgment against him. Samuel was faithful from beginning to end because he had a heart for God and a mind that understood God's purpose and will in his life. And he would not be stopped by any conflict, by any confrontation. What is God you have purposed to do in me? I delight in that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.